Now, well, good morning again. We're continuing on in our sermon series called No Comfort Zone. And this morning we're going to be looking at two passages. One's from Leviticus 18 and the other's from Colossians 2. You're welcome to turn there in your own Bibles or smartphone apps. They're also printed for you on page 11 in the bulletin. And boys and girls, your translation, which we will be referring to several times, is on page 12 if you want to um, have that in front of you. So years ago, we had a black lab... Her name was Dixie, and we loved Dixie. Dixie was great, and you know, as all dogs, Dixie liked to eat, you know, and we try to be really, you know, disciplined and not overfeed the dog, but you know, they're, they're dogs, and they have those eyes, right, and they look up at you, and they wag that tail, and you just can't help but like, just give them extra food, and so we had not been very diligent in our care of Dixie, and Dixie um, got very large, and one day I went outside to do something, and Dixie came running affectionately to me and kind of leapt up against me, and she was so heavy, she almost knocked me over. And I remember stopping, this look, and I finally just looked at her, and I just like noticed for the first time, I was like, Dixie, you're fatty, fat, fat, fatty. And I went in, and I told Nikki, I said, Dixie has gotten so fat. And my wife looked at me with this twinkle in her eye and this little enigmatic on her face, and she goes, this is hard for you, isn't it? You judge people who have fat dogs. Like, I do not. I do judge people who have fat dogs. That's messed up, isn't it? And you do the same thing. We all do that. We all have something similar in our life where we have values that are preferences that we think are really important. And we just can't help ourselves to project those onto other people to determine how good of a person they are based on what we value. That's judging. And we're good at it. It's very comfortable for us, isn't it? And unfortunately, earned or unearned, doesn't matter. You know, when you're dealing with groups of people, perception is reality. If we were to poll our non-Christian neighbors, uh, what's one major aspect that you know about Christians and churches? I bet being judgmental would probably rank pretty high on their list. And so we're in this series about getting out of our comfort zones because until we decide to get out of a comfort zone, nothing changes. And so since this pandemic has kind of forced all of us out of our comfort zones, so to speak, before we jump right back into the new normal as soon as we possibly can, we want to examine some of our comfort zones and see if maybe we shouldn't quite jump into those so quickly and readily. So last week we looked at the idea of serving people even when it hurts. And this week we're going to look at the mandate for God's people to be a different type of community, a unique community which doesn't judge each other or others. But the church is made up of sinners, right? We're not a museum of saints. We're a hospital for sinners. And so this is an area that we need to be mindful of. And so we're going to jump into these two passages, one from Leviticus 18, one from Colossians 2, for resources to be that non-judgmental community that God calls us to be. Uh, So first, Leviticus 18, verses 3 through 5. This is God's word. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I'm bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And now Colossians 2. 
Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray together. Oh, Father God, we're grateful that you have revealed your will to us in words that we don't have to guess. We're grateful, Lord, that you have shown us how we are to live, and more than that, you've empowered us by your grace to do so, having set us free in Christ. So, Lord, we pray that even now you would send your Spirit, open this text up to us, May we become more and more like Christ, empowered by his grace. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So our theme for today, what we're going to kind of wrap the whole sermon around is this, is that God's family is different because we don't judge as they judge. And hopefully you appreciate the irony there at the very end that I made it a judgmental theme because it's so comfortable, it's so easy to become judgmental, isn't it? I could have just stopped and said, God's family is different because we don't judge. Doesn't it kind of just feel better? As they don't. There's that judging is right there inside of us, which is, is our first point. Judging comes naturally. This is from Leviticus 18. So what's going on in Leviticus at this point, God has rescued his people. He's pulled them out of Egypt. They've been culturally Egyptians longer than there's been in America. So by practice, by culture, by habit, for all intents and purposes, they were Egyptians. They may have been children of Abraham way long ago, but after 450 years, they'd forgotten all of that. So God is basically, you know, doing the Vince Lombardi thing. This is my word. This is a football. This is how you do life. And so his first things he said is, look, don't be what you were in Egypt and don't be what's all around you in Canaan. Be my unique rescued community. See, they needed to hear that because they were used to being slaves with masters, having rules, following the rules, jumping through hoops to make the master happy was their mindset. And so they brought that to God. They brought that to each other. And God says, no, I have set you free. So don't enforce rules like they did in Egypt. Don't make new rules like they do in Canaan. Instead, the gist of this passage is don't be like you used to be before Jesus set you free. Don't be like the people all around you who don't know Jesus today. See, like the Israelites, we can struggle with the freedom that we have in our rescue, can't we? In Jesus, we're adopted as daughters. We're adopted as sons. We have the rights and privileges of actual heirs of God. And yet, because we used to be slaves to sin, it's very comfortable, isn't it, to live in a a slave mindset. And especially since we live around people who are still slaves of sin. Both Egypt and Canaan used people, 
devalued people as objects for their own desires, their own uses. And it is our tendency because of the culture around us, because of who we used to be, we devalue people and judge them based on what we think is important, what we are comfortable with. And not only that, but both Egypt and Canaan used religious rites, religious rules, religious practices to control or manipulate the spiritual world. If I do these things, the supernatural world gives me a good life. And that's the root of religious judging in the church. Yeah, I'm saved by grace. But God really likes this behavior. And so when I do it, God really likes me. And when other Christians don't behave as I do, well, God doesn't like them quite as much. See, and into that comfortable temptation of judgment, God speaks. Let's all look at the kids' translation of Leviticus 18.3. Boys and girls, it's on page 12 if you want to look there. Here's, Here's what it says. It says, you are not to be like you used to be before I rescued you. Nor are you to be like the world around you now. Don't do like they do. You see, boys and girls, real Christians, those who've been changed by God's grace, are supposed to be different. Not be your friend at church on Sunday and then at school on Monday make fun of you. That's not how Christians treat each other. But that is how non-Christians often treat each other. We are part of God's family through Jesus and we are supposed to be different. So even though judging comes naturally to us, God calls his people to be a community whose difference shows his grace, shows the reality of his grace. And that's where we get into the Colossians passage. We see the beginning of this Colossian passage that we have to hold on to the reality in Jesus. Look with me, if you will, at verse 16 there in Colossians 2. It says this, Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. You see, Colossae was a divided church. There were factions in the congregation. You had former pagans and former Jews, both rescued in Jesus. Which means, like most churches, you had a conservative group with a history, with a culture of church practices. They understand the the language. And you have an unchurched group with no biblical background whatsoever. And so which group's preferences are right? Which group does Paul come and say, follow these guys, not these guys? Paul says both, or neither, depending on how you want to look at it in Colossians. He won't validate both or either. He, he uh, critiques both, as we'll see as you walk through this passage. And I also want to say, this is not just a church problem. Every human institution out there has these two groups. Progressives and conservatives, we can call them. Innovators and traditionalists, we can call them. And they have a hard time trusting each other's motives. And that's a major source of the polarization we see in our world today. And the real difference in the church is right here. Christians can get along with each other because we're in union to Jesus, the New Testament says. And if we're in union to Jesus, we're in union to each other. So we're all together. We have unity and so we can get along in our differences. If only it were that simple, right? See, here's what happens. We use five little words to mess all that up. When my preferences are violated, when my comfort zone is challenged, I'm reminded of the unity of the church. I'm reminded of the grace of God in Jesus and the liberty that we have in him, and I don't care. I say, 
yeah, but don't you think my preferences are really the mature way? That my preference is biblical? And I devote lots of time and lots of energy to being an evangelist for my preference instead of being an evangelist for my Lord who set me free from all that. Just giving a quick example. The word modesty. You can't quote chapter and verse anywhere to define modesty. Yet it's a very traditional value. It's most churches have an idea of what modesty is. Most people have an idea of what modesty is. And so in lack of chapter and verse, what do we do? Well, modesty becomes what I'm comfortable with. We assume ourselves to be modest. And so we are the standard. Which means, well, God likes it when people dress like I dress, right? And then we judge others based on how their tastes match up to our tastes. And when confronted with the truth of our liberty in Jesus in Colossians 2, what what do we do? We deflect with the five words, yeah, but don't you think a born-again person wouldn't wear that? We make the issue rather than Jesus the functional means of closeness to God. And that's what's happening in this Colossian church. That's what Paul has to address. And it's happened in every single church since. Paul's whole point here is that what stands out in the church, what's supposed to stand out in the church, is that we have unity in Jesus. So in our differences, instead of judging, we appreciate and learn from each other. For the good of the church, for the ministry of the gospel, we need each other's perspective. See, when people who are different from each other can get along in unity because of Jesus, the world takes notice. It messes people up. As the Leviticus passage reminds us, that's a huge difference from everywhere else. Both Egypt and Canaan were very judgmental places, and God said, my people, my community is not. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine about a year and a half ago when I was still in the Boston area, and he pastors in Cambridge, which is where the little part of Boston where uh, Harvard and MIT are. And this part of an already very blue area, this zip code is one of the bluest, deepest blue, progressive areas of the country. And he was telling me about a conversation he had with a neighbor, and his neighbor just kind of blurted out, man, isn't it great to live in a community that has such diversity? And this pastor is not a coward like I am. He's much more courageous like Marty. And he goes, dude, it's not diversity when 95% of us vote the exact same way. That's called uniformity, not diversity. It's like, whoa, that's so, that's right. That's it right there, isn't it? A judging spirit rejects the unity of the gospel in favor of uniformity. See, to manifest gospel unity, we must get out of our comfort zone. Boys and girls, I want to make sure you're tracking with me here. I'm kind of using some big words and concepts. Let's look together at your verse 16. It's that very first verse there under, under the break there, under Colossians. It says this. God says, since you're in my family, don't listen to what others think on how good Christians should live. Okay, boys and girls, let's play a little game, okay? You can actually raise your hands. How many of you like ice cream? All right, let's do a little experiment. How many adults like ice cream? There we go. Okay, let's do a thought experiment here, okay? Let's just pretend hypothetically that the Bible says Christians should eat ice cream on Sundays. Right? <laughs> Hallelujah, right? Let's do it. And because you've been set free in liberty in Jesus Christ, there's no particular flavor. Go to Baskin Robbins and live it up for the glory of God. And so you go and you have your chocolate and you have your banana or whatever ice cream, but then all of a sudden you step outside of chocolate, strawberry, vanilla land, and you enter into the land of turtle for the first time. 
and you have this sweet cream-based ice cream with caramel stripes going through it and chocolate-covered pecans, and you bite into it, and the, mat- the, the weird music sound from Ratatouille goes to the side of your head, and all of a sudden you're like, <gasps> why would you ever have anything but turtle ice cream ever again? And you love it, and it's so fulfilling, and it's really great, and, you're so, and you glorify God because of turtle ice cream, and all of a sudden you sort of think, man, this is... People who eat chocolate and who eat, they're having such a paucity of experience. They need to have turtle ice cream and they really don't get it if they don't have turtle ice cream. And all of a sudden in your mind you start to change it from Christians should eat ice cream on Sunday to Christians should eat turtle ice cream on Sunday. And I know we have freedom, yeah, but don't you think people who really get it would eat turtle ice cream? And if you don't drink, eat turtle ice cream, I don't think you're really serious. Boys and girls, that's just silly, isn't it? That's just laughable. We would laugh at somebody who does that. But what Paul says in these verses, boys and girls, is that making up rules based on our favorite flavor of life and then judging others who don't is just as silly. So how does Pastor Paul deal with this? What does he do with the traditionalists and the innovators? Well, in verses 18 through 19, Paul critiques the former pagans, those who've come into the church with no biblical background. Let's call them the innovators. These people come to Jesus. They don't know anything about the Old Testament. They don't know anything about the Bible. And it's all new. It's all different. And so these people resist traditions and practices that church folk like me just take for granted. And a healthy church needs these people around. To remind us that it's about the ice cream, not the flavor we've become used to. But they can very easily slip into judging the more churched folk, calling them stodgy. They love traditions more than Jesus. And Paul calls them out on that junk and says, no, let the gospel change your heart. You see, the pagan religions all around Rome were all about physical and emotional experiences. So either you lived it up, eat, drink, be merry, carouse, do it all, or deny all of that, live in asceticism like a hermit and do nothing. Either way, whether indulgence or denial, it was all about the physical experience, the sensual nature of life. And Paul tells these former pagans, don't bring all that stuff into the church and then judge traditionalists by it. See, for these former pagans, the authentic religious experience that they were expecting looked nothing like church. When they start worshiping with these former Jews who kind of bring the synagogue worship practices into the New Testament, and they sit down for Christian worship, and they have word, sacrament, prayer, fellowship, they're asking, where's all the excitement? Where's all the stuff? This is boring. And they start judging abusing the idea of authenticity, innovators look at traditional Christians and they say, you have no heart. Where's the excitement? Well, their favorite phrase is, y'all don't get the gospel. See, whenever one Christian looks at another Christian, knows they are a Christian and says, you don't get it because you don't think my thing's important, that's being in Egypt. That's being in Canaan. God's people are supposed to be different. Make no mistake, when we emphasize our preferences over unity, we are judging others about taste, not truth. So how does Paul address this? Let's look together at verse 19. What does he tell them? He says, you are not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Paul says in verse 19, judging others by our preferences means we are not holding on to Jesus. 
And if this is your struggle, have hope. We live in the same grace in which we are saved. The gospel gives us the resources to repent. So Paul critiques the innovators. But there's another group in this church. In verses 20 through 22, Paul critiques the former Jews who've become Christians. The the traditionalists, we'll call them. Look with me at verses 20 through 22. It says this, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. See, this group knows the culture of the church. They have a biblical background. They're very comfortable with church practices. But in that comfort, they've turned preferences into rules. And Paul says straight up, don't submit to such rules. And the problem is not only were they trying to submit to those rules, they were judging other Christians by those made-up rules. And in verse 22, Paul mocks those sorts of rules. He has no respect for that junk in the church. And he knew what he was talking about. Paul was a former Jew. He was of the strictest of the strict. He was all about religious rules and performance. He knows the temptation. What is the temptation? Well, now that I'm in God's family by grace, he will like me more if I do this. We never say that out loud, right? We barely even articulate it, but we live as if that's true, don't we? And he especially likes it if I can get others to do it as well. See, the, tempt- the, the traditionalist temptation is to destroy the liberty and freedom that we have in Jesus, to bring Egypt and Canaan into the church. I want to make sure we're all tracking together, so let's all look together at the kids' uh, translation of verses 20 through 22. Here's how he put it for the kids. If Jesus set us free, why do you follow pretend religious rules like Christians shouldn't read that, Christians shouldn't drink that, Christians shouldn't touch that? Those types of rules are human thinking. They are not from God. So let's bring this into our world by looking at the big three issues. Especially in American Christianity, we have have the big three issues, don't we? What do we wear? What do we sing? And what do we drink? Right? Clothes, songs, alcohol. Every person in this room has an informed, biblical, personal preference on those three issues. You, in your mind, you, well, I think Christians should wear, wear this. I think Christians should sing that. I think Christians should not or should drink that. And there's nothing wrong with that. See, I want to make a little caveat here, make sure we're, we're, not, we're on the same page. Rules are different from convictions. See, a conviction is the Holy Spirit comes to you as a born-again person in an area of liberty and pricks your conscience. And all of a sudden you're like, I, I don't think I could do that. I, I'm free to, but you know, I just I feel guilty. The biblical path of wisdom in that moment is to obey your conscience. That, that weird verse in James, you know, it says to, to the one who see, thinks it's sin and does it, it is sin. That's what he's talking about. The Holy Spirit comes to you and says, yeah, you don't get to do that. You need to obey that conscience. That's conviction. That's wise. Here's what we do, though. And we're wired this way, aren't we? We assume, well, if my conscience is bound, yours must be, yours should be too. So the I should becomes we should, Right? The Holy Spirit comes to you and says, turtle ice cream. And you're like, yes, turtle for everybody. No, 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 turtle ice cream for you. But, but no, just you. That's the difference. We want to take an internal conviction that is good and right and true and we should obey. And we want to put that out on other people. Because it's easier, isn't it? 
when the I shouldn't becomes you shouldn't, that's not biblical. Paul is dealing with good people here. People who are bound in their conscience and they are being obedient. Good for them. The issue is they, they start trying to bind others' consciences as well where Scripture has not bound them, and we don't have that right. That's no good, Paul says. In fact, Paul says in verses 20 through 22 that such binding is actually a denial of the gospel. He says, you're not holding on to Jesus, the head. You're denying the gospel. You see, true Christian liberty only happens in the gospel when we are secure in the finished work of Jesus. Submitting to fictional rules of taste in the church puts us in bondage. And this is the really big deal. This is why it matters so much. It also tells our non-Christian neighbors that salvation is Jesus plus this preference. See, judging each other comes so naturally, doesn't it? We're very comfortable doing it. But we must get out of our judging comfort zones because verse 23 says what? That only the gospel has value. Look with me at verse 23. Paul says, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These rules and practices we judge each other by, they appear to be wisdom, but actually, Paul says, it's a religion we've made up. It doesn't exist. It's not the gospel. It's churchianity. It has no value. Boys and girls, I want to make sure you're following me. Let's all look at your last verse there on your page. Here's how he put it for you. It says, all those extra rules sound so churchy, but they're not the gospel, boys and girls. They are actually worthless to make us closer to God. You see, for all of us, boys and girls and adults, when we judge each other, instead of resting in Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel, we actually functionally rest in Jesus plus this behavior, Jesus plus this rule, Jesus plus this preference. Instead of looking to Jesus for our ongoing need in the Christian life, we look to a behavior and we grade others on that behavior. If you've been here over the past month, this is another application of goat dragging. Instead of looking to the righteousness of Jesus given to us by grace, we drag the goat of this behavior to God and say, look how good I am, God. And look how good they're not. They don't have this behavior. See, goat draggers can't help but judge. It can be the innovator addicted to authenticity. It can be the traditionalist addicted to church practice. It doesn't matter when someone who's free from our rules expresses that freedom, we judge them. And Paul says we do that because we are not living in the fullness of the gospel. We're living like we used to be, like the culture all around us. You know, one of the differences between a speech and a sermon is this, is that I spend usually a week getting beaten up by a text. It shows the idols of my heart. It shows where I am a wretched Christian in need of the gospel. And so what I do is I kind of put that together as the text slays me, and I come and kind of bring the, my guts before you and say, let's do a postmortem together. That's a sermon. A speech is me do- giving you a download dump of some information you should consider. A sermon is the Holy Spirit doing surgery on our hearts. And so let me just get really candid and practical with you. This is my problem. It, and it's bigger than judging people with fat dogs. I am a religious jerk at heart. 
I assume people aren't serious about Jesus based on stupid, stupid things. The most egregious, you ready for this? The most egregious, please don't leave. I judge large Christians, overweight Christians, as not serious about their faith. I do. And as you can see, I'm, I'm like one of them, right? No one's ever called Sean skinny in his whole life. I am an overweight Christian. And, I mean, and just this week, as I was studying and applying this passage to myself, I started thinking, like, fat dogs, fat Christians, I have an issue with weight. And I do. I've been thick, if not outright fat, all my life. And it's precisely because this is my struggle that I'm most prone to judge others in it. And as I was praying through this passage, actually it was 6.45 a.m., I was at the Y on a Stairmaster, and the Holy Spirit just slapped some sense into me. I want approval. I want you to love me. And our culture's fat-shaming infatuation with being in shape has found a place deep, deep in my idolatrous heart. And since I work hard hoping to earn our culture's approval by being in shape, I judge those who I assume don't work as hard as I do. So it may have the appearance of wisdom in being healthy and in shape and trying to be more healthy, but when it comes to my sinful, judgmental, destined-for-hell heart, it is of no value. I'm not resting in Jesus. I bet I'm not alone. Let this text dig deep into your heart. Those areas you get angry with others so fast, where you judge other Christians as not as serious so quickly, where you're so quick to say, yeah, but don't you think, and then put your preference on somebody. I wonder if it's an area where you are desperately looking to your efforts for approval and for love rather than resting in Jesus. If that resonates with you, don't be downcast. Have hope. We can repent and believe the gospel, like right now. We can, we can embrace judging because it's our comfort zone. We can think God wants us to judge for him, but in the gospel we're free from that because we see the amazing truth that we don't have to judge others to make ourselves feel better. Because Jesus was judged for us on the cross to actually make us better. And in him we are judged as forgiven and holy and there is nothing else to do but rest in him and rest in his work and be judged as in him. How Jesus will set you free in his love and his approval. And then you won't care what others think about you and you won't care what others are doing. You'll be too infatuated and enthralled with this beautiful Jesus who has judged you as innocent because of his blood. That's what's available to you when you place your faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord. If you've never done that, do it now. Embrace him by faith as he's offered in the gospel. And for all of my fellow judges in the room, all of us need to repent and, and believe the gospel again and, and again and again because we leak. When we leak, we judge. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and Heavenly Father, there's a big part of my heart that just doesn't want to believe that I have been judged as innocent and holy, forgiven, because you judged Jesus instead. Lord, would you help me to believe the truth, Lord, 
that Jesus absolutely lived the life you demanded of me and that I failed to give you. And then he died the death that you demanded I die for my failure. And that in his resurrection, he has set us all free from judgment when we place our faith in him as the resurrected Lord. Father, would you burn that reality into all of our hearts, perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the first time again. Would you help us, Lord, to look to Jesus Christ alone? And we ask this in in his name. Amen.